world is changing at a rate that we've never seen before. From business to art to sports, these changes are affecting every aspect of our lives. My name is Nick Kastner, and we're setting out to talk with the people who are altering the way things are done. Along with Alec McChesney, this is The Commonwealth. Our guest today is Sylvia Carrasco, who is the, the co-founder and CEO of Goldex, which is an app that is disrupting the gold industry. Sylvia has made business leaders list of London's three most inspirational leaders, and Computer Business Review describes her as the Sylvester Stallone of the gold industry. Sylvia, it is an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, Nick, yeah. for having me here. Um, so to start with, what is Goldex? <laughs> Well, Goldex is, uh, is a startup based in London, um, mm-hmm. and our aim is to become the first marketplace for both institutions and retail customers to buy and sell physical gold at oh. the best possible prices. Okay, so the, uh, the um, people buying gold are both big, big corporations and personal investors, correct? Yeah, that's okay. right. That's right. So... Uh, effectively, the the business itself um, is you know uh, uh, set up the same way. Whether you um, are aiming to buy ten dollars of gold or whether you are buying ten you know million dollars of gold, um, uh, the, the the whole point is that the the gold market is a very siloed market. When you want to buy gold, you need to, as a retail investor, for example, you need Mm -hmm. to look at the different providers that are out there. You need to look at their uh, uh, prices that they offer. You need to look at the quality of the gold that they give you. Uh, Sometimes they force you to buy certain denominated bars uh, or coins. Um, Also, you know, if they are selling gold uh, uh, per gram, they will have a minimum uh, amount that you need to buy, maybe maybe it's a gram, maybe mm-hmm. it's five grams. So so as a retail investor, the, the, the issue is that you need to be navigating a, a myriad of providers uh, to see which one suits you better. And of course, we can never forget the element of trust. Who mm-hmm. do you trust? Um, so once you have spent quite a lot of time researching who you should buy gold from mm-hmm. uh, because it suits you, um, you you then go and, and, and go ahead with that provider. Um, what Goldex does is eliminate all that. Um, the the model uh, that we have is uh, uh, you know dealers, market makers that come to the platform on mm-hmm. an anonymous basis. They are posting the best prices, um, and effectively, when you want to look for uh, buying or selling, Goldex does all the work behind the scenes for you. So first of all, we allow customers to buy as little as one cent. Mm-hmm. So there is wow. no minimum uh, required. Uh, second, there are no minimum denominated bars. They, they, as I said, they can go down to a milligram of gold if they wish to buy that. Um, when it comes to the prices, the uh, uh, Goldex platform basically has developed a smart order router systems that always look at the dealer who is offering the best price. So you want to buy $100 of gold. Uh, we receive the $100. Of course, we do the KYC anti-money laundering checks to make sure that you, you, know, you are uh, an individual that, you know, that 
can can go ahead in the platform. Mm-hmm. And the moment you hit the button buy, our smart router will effectively send that order to the dealer who is offering the best price. Um, when it comes to sell, um, the uh, routers operate the same way. Now, imagine today you were buying gold from a dealer and mm-hmm. you want to keep that gold in their vaults. We have seen quite often that some dealers, not all of them, of course, but some dealers uh, uh, take advantage of the fact that they entice you to go through the platform so that they give you a good entry price to buy your gold because they know that when it's time to sell, you are forced to sell through them, to them. Yeah. So in, in certain uh, uh, situations, customers are not hit maybe at point of entry, but they are hit with a higher price uh, uh, or higher cost at the point of exit. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the way we have structured Goldex means that either you are buying or you are selling, we can always buy gold from the best provider, but we can also sell gold from the best provider. So we might have bought your gold from provider one, mm-hmm. and it, when it comes to sell, the best price comes from provider five, and we will sell it uh, to provider five. So yeah. always looking at that best price. Of course, for the retail investors, they also have, uh, is, is via an app, which is uh, uh, downloaded on, on the app stores. At the moment, it's, it's only UK only, I'm afraid. So okay. uh, we have quite a few requests from uh, US individuals, but we are not there yet. Um, but the, the, you know, which, it will be... Which countries are you in? At the moment, we are UK only. We are going to be launching in the next three months in Europe. Okay. And then in quarter four next year, we're going to be launching in India okay. as well. So the, the, the idea is for the retail investor to have one app where they have access to the best prices, a consolidated uh, a price for gold from a multiple amount of providers. Um, you know, they also receive uh, trade recommendations uh, very easy to read and and they're short term, so they can actually benefit from the volatility. Mm-hmm. We also give them access to charts. They can have um, price uh, uh, alarms. So mm-hmm. if there are you know certain prices that they want to be notified, we tell them. And also very importantly, we give our own research uh, to them, and we also put about three hundred. Um, uh, news feeds on the app. So pretty much anything that comes out on the internet in regards to gold uh, is available. So it's a one-stop shop for those retail people without having to shop around, look around anymore. For the institutions, uh, for the, you know, the institutions is a, is a very uh, uh, interesting way of, of trading. Of course, they're not given an app. They have sophisticated APIs mm-hmm. uh, connected to us. And let's imagine you are a provider who uh, has retail customers behind and you want to offer gold to them. Now, at the moment, if you are, um, you know, an institution that has retail customers behind and you want to offer gold, you don't have any other option than to connect individually to those providers. Those institutions, though, those companies are not really offering their customers the best price. They're offering the, their customers the price of that provider. Mm-hmm. Also, they have another problem, which is... If they want to have access to two, three providers, they need two, three connections. And that means two, three uh, relationships, two, three reconciliation systems. Some of the customers will operate with one and other customers will operate with other. Mm-hmm. So it becomes quite cumbersome yeah. and expensive for those providers. We are effectively the first 
um, a hub which is multi-dealer. It's, a multi, it's the first multi-dealer platform available. So for them, it's, it's quite uh, easy understood that you know through a single connection, first, they give the customers the best price. Mm-hmm. Uh, and second, through one connection, they get access to uh, X amount of dealers behind the scenes without having to connect individually on a one-by-one yeah. one basis. Do you vet the gold providers yes. on the platform? How? What, what's, what's that process like? Well, there are certain, there are certain uh, uh, amount of um, uh, requirements that we, we, we enforce on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gold has to be of a certain quality. The vaults have to be in a certain vault. Uh, which is obviously the most well-known vault, uh, which is Brinks, okay. uh, and and pretty much all of them already have uh, uh, their gold stored with Brinks. But that is a prerogative that we ask them to to have. <clears throat> they also have to um, uh, provide quality on a, on an allocated basis. They also have to be uh, uh, operating on on a trust basis because. Okay. The, the, both the money and the gold that we hold on behalf of our customers is always in trust. Mm-hmm. So, and we expect our providers to also operate in a trust model with us. That means that should they go into liquidation or should we go into liquidation, our customers' gold and cash is fully ring-fenced from creditors. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are X amount of parameters plus technical parameters that they need to, to abide to. Yes, of course. And so are you doing anything with the exchange of the, uh, of the gold, of the physical material? Or like how, how does that exchange process well, the, the, there is really no, um, there is no physical movement. That's okay. one of the reasons why all the providers always have the gold in the same, uh, in the same, uh, uh, not the same vault physically, but uh, with the same, within the same company that oh, okay. has 60 vaults uh, across the world. So okay. they pretty much cover the entire world. But um, the, there is no physical movement between the dealers. There is no physical movement between the dealers and gold decks. Um, so, so it's actually quite a you know streamlined, uh, uh, easy process as far as uh, uh, customer experience. Is interesting. Concerned. So, uh, so that one vault company stores almost all the gold in the world. Yes. Wow. Interesting. Um, how? Um, when did you start this? How? How long ago? Well, the the company, the idea first, the the company was set up uh, uh, by myself um, because I wanted to solve a problem for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I decided to start looking at buying gold about five years ago, <clears throat> and I realized that the market was broken. As a retail uh, investor, I was uh, uh, I was looking into an asset class, and I thought, well, hold on one second, you know, who do I buy it from? Why is this guy offering me the prices? Interestingly enough, of course, gold doesn't uh, have a single price. So it's an OTC market, so mm-hmm. there is no... Um, consolidated uh, price tape, which means that every single provider out there will tell me I sell gold at the best price, hmm. which is impossible because yeah. the prices are different and they all not and they all say they offer the same, yes. which is and statistically impossible. Yes, and, and the market fluctuates greatly, correct? Like, yeah, of course, it's, yeah. A, it's a volatile uh, asset class. Mm-hmm. Um, um, definitely, the the difference is that whereas I, if I am bu- buying Apple shares. I know what is the price of an Apple share, and then I will pay a commission to the broker who sells me the Apple share. So it's very transparent. When I am buying physical gold, there is no such a thing as the price of gold. 
there are certain parameters, but that is where the uh, dealers, of course, make their money because they are market makers, but they also charge me a commission. Mm-hmm. So um, as, a, as a client, as a, as a retail uh, person, that's where I realized that, you know, I had to do a lot of research to look at who is really giving me the best price, who is really giving me what I want. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when... I obviously, with my background, I started looking, digging more into it and realized that there was a big opportunity to disrupt the the, the, the market. I wanted to solve a problem for myself mm-hmm. effectively. Yeah. And and that's what made me, uh, uh, you know, start with Goldex about five years ago. Okay, interesting. And as I was doing research on your company, I was in, I was impressed with the roster of people that that, that you're working with. Um, for example, so you're, um, correct me if I'm wrong on any of these, but your CTO is a former Goldman vice president. Your COO and co-founder was the executive director at UBS Investment Bank, which is a renowned Swiss bank. And your board members include the former CEO of, of Deutsche Bank and the former head of Asian markets for KPMG. So how, how did you... How did you take this idea and, and then surround yourself with extremely talented people? Well, these are only some of the people you see. Um, mm-hmm. There are even more interesting people behind <laughs> the scenes. Um, if you look at our cap table, we are extremely privileged to have uh, top financiers that if I, if I, if I was uh, uh, given their names, um, yourself and, and the listeners would, would know very quickly. Some mm-hmm. of them Americans, actually. Wow. Um, the The... It all started, uh, as I said, very slowly. Uh, first thing I did was uh, contact my co-founder, who I had known for over 18 years. Uh, we had very similar careers. I come from Credit Suisse. He was at UBS. And we both uh, uh, are Spanish. And we both um, started working in electronic trading. Um, <clears throat> electronic trading for equities really started, uh, uh, well, the banks really started getting into it back at the end of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um and the, uh, there was a bunch of people that I probably think is about 10, 20 of us who uh, in, in the city who decided to put together a protocol to so that the banks speak the same language that is called the fixed protocol. Mm-hmm. And uh, from that moment on, uh, we started developing from customers being able to place orders through their computers into the market without having to pick up the phone. Then the second thing was the algorithmics. So if you are buying 1 million shares of Apple, you can actually use, uh, um, you know, algos to slice the order depending on the volume, depending on the price, depending on certain parameters. Uh, Credit Suisse actually was the first one to introduce algorithmic trading in equities. And then the other banks followed. Fernando doesn't like this because... He always thinks that um, UBS were better, but he actually knows that Credit Suisse were the number one. Yeah. Um, the and person. So, so that product you developed. Wow. Yes, we developed. We developed all this. Okay. Um, you and your co-founder. Um, well, we were doing. Uh, I was part of the team in Credit Suisse. Fernando was okay. uh, part of the team in UBS. Okay. The gentleman who was running Credit Suisse at the time, uh, from a business perspective, is called Richard Balarcas, who is one of our board advisors. Wow. I credit him as the number one in the world when it comes to electronic equities trading. Hmm. He is the guy who literally invented algorithmic trading. Wow. Um, that business in Credit Suisse, we developed it from zero pounds to $7 billion. Wow. 
wow. uh, in revenue in seven years. Wow. So uh, we then uh, did multi-liquidity uh, trading, etc. So we've actually seen the entire uh, uh, market in equities changing, and that is pretty much what we are doing now. Now, um, as I said, you know, first I called Fernando, told him what I was doing. He got very excited, and then from that moment on, we we started working full-time, developing the vision, having an understanding of the market better. And, of course, uh, you know, we needed some funding, and we started calling some of our colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I am one of the things I'm more, more proud of is that the uh, people who have backed us up, uh, up until now, have been the majority of people in the industry, people who know that uh, in our previous lives, we were good at what we were doing. They they have, obviously, when you invest early stage on a company like ours, uh, you're backing the team, you're backing their expertise and their vision, uh, but more importantly, you back the team. And they, you know, it was, uh, yeah, you know, we, we, we were very high profile uh, careers. We mm-hmm. did very well. And, and our colleagues thought, well, if these people are, are doing this, I'm backing them up because... Uh, because they've, you know, they have twenty years behind them, showing that they knew what they were doing. So I'm very proud of that, and yeah. that's how we ended up having uh, top people associated with us. And then day one is more difficult as you get, uh, um, uh, as you grow the business, it, it's, it becomes easier to tell people what you are doing and to be associated. I think the early days is always more difficult when you start any business. We're going to take a quick break to let you know how you can help us grow this community. We view the Commonwealth as a group of people working to change the world. By listening and supporting this show, you're crucial members of the Commonwealth. To continue this work, we need help growing our community. Please invite your friends to like the Commonwealth's Facebook page. The link and directions are in our show notes. Now, back to the conversation. Uh, You mentioned earlier you're from Spain. Yes. Yeah, where in Spain are you from? Uh, I'm from Bilbao, originally from uh, the Basque uh, region. Basque people are well known for being very stubborn, very strong, <laughs> um, and to also be a matriarch uh, uh, society. So women are very powerful mm, in the okay. Basque uh, in the Basque culture. So it's no surprise uh, for you know for me to to have the you know the mentality that I have when I was. Uh, uh, growing up in, in, in a type of culture like this. Yeah. Um, but I've already been in London for 26 years. Okay. So How did you end up in London? How long? Yes, no, no how, how did you end up? In like <clears throat> well, London? it was uh, uh, one of these things, you know. I, I, from Bilbao, I went to live in Madrid. I finished university studies in Madrid. From Madrid, uh, I was going to join the diplomatic service and uh, for that reason, I went to uh, live in France, to in Bordeaux. Other than drinking wine, I also did, um, you know, some some university studies in uh, uh, cultural relationships and and politics. Uh, from there, then I moved to London again. I did, you know, I went to City University to do some studies there on on, on administration studies, and then it was a time for me to come back to Spain and, and sit down and study for 10 hours a day to pass the, uh, the exams to join the diplomatic body. Um, but then by that time, I had already part of my uh, city university studies required me to, uh, to do some uh, secondment uh, in, in the city. And once I got to the back of the city, I 
you know, I thought, no, I don't want to go back to Spain. I'm actually liking this. Of course, I was quite young. I enjoyed, you know, making some money that you do in the city when you go into corporate uh, uh, worlds. And I found it fascinating. And 26 years later, I'm still living in London. I obviously have my house here. I've mm-hmm. lived more in London than, than, than in my own country. Um, and, you know, I thoroughly enjoy living in London. Yes, yeah. You mentioned that your the start of your career was in culture and political science. Yes. It sounded like, yeah. How, um, what was it like then shifting into the finance world? Well, I, I, I always think that I've been personally been very, very lucky. It depends on the country. I'm not so sure about the U.S., but there is one thing I can tell you about the U.K. in comparison to Spain, mm-hmm. uh, which are the two countries I really know very well. Um, in Spain, once you do, your life is very early on written for you. If, if uh, I give you an example. When, uh, when I went to university, I actually studied history, and then I did uh, a master's specialization in history of art. So if, should I have a state in Spain, my life would have been pretty much uh, pigeonholed into history, history of art, either as mm-hmm. a teacher or a researcher, or whatever shape or form, but it would always have been linked to this. There was no way for me to go into, um, into you know, economics or, or anything of that, short, uh, that sort. Um, that's one of the reasons why I decided to, to join the diplomatic uh, service, because for me it was a way out. I, I enjoyed my university studies, but I did not perceive myself as spending my whole life uh, doing that. I like art, but I like to buy art, mm-hmm. maybe, rather than not to have any money to buy yeah. no art. <laughs> yeah. So um, for that. me, that was the escape. Of course, um, that's the way in Spain things things work. You know, you, you do your studies and that's it. You, you are not moving from one side to, to the other. The UK is very different. In the UK, it doesn't really matter. You can reinvent yourself. You can, uh, you are, you know, the, 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 the top investment banks, the, the top uh, four uh, auditing companies and, and consultants, they go to universities to, to speak to the students that have studied history, politics, and religion studies. It doesn't matter what they've studied. Mm-hmm. They, they want them to be part of KPMG or or Grant Thornton or, or J.P. Morgan. Yeah. Um, all that matters is that they have uh, a brain because, you know, they've done some studies in, in university and, and the U.K. has the view that, you know, come to me, you have a brain, you can think, that's fine, I will teach you everything you need to know about electronic trading or shares or, or sales trading or, okay. or convertible bonds or M&A. So the U.K. is fantastic for this, where you can really move move along and and basically... Uh, uh, become what you want to be mm-hmm. without being put in a box where you just cannot move across, as it happens in Spain. Interesting, yeah. Um, and you uh, you touched on this earlier, but um, and and I don't always ask female entrepreneurs about about this, but you are a vocal a- advocate supporting uh, more females in in entrepreneurship. What makes you speak out on that issue? Well, because I think it's necessary. Um, uh, of course, speaking and doing nothing doesn't really serve to any purposes. But I think the first thing we need to do is talk about it. Of course. Um, I see a lack of females uh, uh, setting up companies, uh, especially fintech companies. Mm-hmm. And I think the main issue with the fintech companies is that whereas, you know, I think people can set up pretty much any type of, well, you know, you need to be... You need to have worked in finance 
to set up a fintech company. I don't think anybody who's been selling, I don't know, uh, you know, shoes can set up an asset management company online because first you need to understand the asset management business uh, quite well. So for me, the funnel is uh, a woman who starts her career in finance who then, after a certain amount of years, decides to set up a fintech uh, company. Um, and the issue comes, how many women join the finance world? And, of course, it's higher than it was when I started my own career, but but, uh, but I don't think it's still high enough. Um, why is that? Well, you know, you obviously have, uh, we all have educational matters where in school kids are still treated differently. Yeah. Uh, the boys are uh, are encouraged to, you know, to take IT, uh, you know, to develop the brain. So in IT, how many women developers do you have? Not many. Yeah. It's, it's very rare. How many... Um, you go still, I bet that you go still to a trading floor where you have 500 people and the majority will be men. Uh, when I started in Credit Suisse, I can tell you that uh, uh, we were very few women. And we, if we wanted to go to the restroom, I had to go two floors up. Wow. And I'm talking about uh, a trading floor with, we were probably between 500,000, 500,000 people. Huh. Um, so it was very few of us. I don't expect that that will still be the case. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that they they have some restrooms on the same floor. But the, the bottom line is that I think it's an educational issue. Um, then, of course, women... They're expected or they want to have children. They, they, you know, they, they don't only want to have a career, but, you know, they, they, there are certain issues where uh, uh, even though now you can work remotely, etc. at the end of the day, I've not heard so many couples where the two, the, both the man and the woman, they are married, they've been married for certain years, they have, you know, equally uh, interesting uh, careers, and then they sit down one, one evening and say, okay, let's go and have babies. Uh, who is going to stay at home? You or me? That conversation, I don't think it, it really happens. I mean, it can happen, of course, but I don't think it's the norm. The norm yeah. is that the woman is, is pretty much the one who is going to stay at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no question. There, there is no even, you know, uh, 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 usually that's not even challenged. Um, and, and, of course, you know, however much we say that, you know, we can do everything, uh, it's not so easy to do everything. And I think women need more support on that sense. And I think it's also the, how women still, uh, um, you know, they still think that, um, you know, of course, quite rightly, that, that, you know, what they want to do is uh, is have a set up a family. And and they they think that their life is, is not, you know, setting up their own company is, is definitely too much to add to the equation. Whereas the man... If you think about it, yeah, he goes home, sees the kids in the evening or even the weekends, and then in the meantime, he can go set up business, be very busy, be traveling, whatever, and, and nobody questions yeah. questions him. Of course, there are women who, who manage to do everything. They are the superwomen, uh, but they are superwomen, and they shouldn't be superwomen. Uh, they should just be women, and there should be more of them, but um, it's just uh, the way it is. So I try, to, I try to encourage women to, first of all, have the confidence to set up their businesses, knowing that they are as good as the next guy next to them, or better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that a woman who has succeeded in certain verticals is probably even better than a man, otherwise she wouldn't have succeeded. 
um, as you know, people who were working with me, you know, these very few women who were sharing the trading floor with me, they've all had tremendous careers. Um, and, and I encourage women to take the plunge. Never, don't do things. <laughs> Always try to do what you want to do. And, and don't, you know, the last thing you want to do is look back 20, you know, 20 years later and think, well, I wish I would have done this. Um, if you have an idea, do it. It's very hard. It's extremely hard. And I always tell, you know, potential entrepreneurs to that no amount of uh, me telling them how hard it is is going to prepare them to how hard this is. However, it's extremely exciting. Um, it's very rewarding. It can be very rewarding. You are creating, uh, you know, something that, you know, you're creating a baby effectively. Somebody asked me on a podcast last week, what is the biggest challenge that you, you, you know, as an entrepreneur you've had? Yeah. And I said, well, the biggest challenge for me, I think, has never been the amount of hours, has never been the, uh, you know, practical issues to resolve. The, uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I can think out of the box. There is always a way, you know, if I have to jump a hurdle in my head, I can go over the hurdle under the hurdle, on the right side of the hurdle, on the left side of the hurdle, but I will pass that hurdle, there is no question. But the, the biggest hurdle itself is the emotional hurdle, where you, every day, you need to be prepared to be told no. Every day you, you have to be prepared that people disregard your idea, that people think that you're not good enough, that you will not succeed, that, um, you know, that's, you know, you're raising money and, and, and you run out of money and you, you have the emotional stress of having to pay people or you mm -hmm. have the emotional stress of of having to, um, you know, to sort out staff issues. So the emotional hurdle of setting your own company is, in my head, you know, 10 times harder than the, the you know, just tangible hurdles. And you need to have a very strong emotional head to continue to be resilient to know that you know that it doesn't matter you have a good idea you're you have a good team you have a good idea be resilient continue they put you down get up they put you down again get up again and that can happen 10 times a day yeah. and you start the morning very happy 10 minutes later you're very upset then 20 minutes later you're very happy again so uh, the life of entrepreneur is being uh, is being extremely volatile from an emotional point of view. So you are either extremely happy or extremely worried. And the lack of sleep always uh, exacerbates these two emotions. So you have only two emotions when you, when you are rolling, uh, you know, rolling the wave of being an entrepreneur. But it's definitely worth it. How do you manage those, those emotional swings? Well, people, you know, people do different things. In my personal uh, in the, the, the way I do this is effectively being surrounded by uh, bad people I can talk to. Um, it's very, very important to talk. And I, I highly recommend this to male entrepreneurs. Uh, women are known for, you know, sharing the problems. They are known for, um, you know, telling the friends or whoever they choose to tell them that, you know, they are going through a rough time. Uh, whereas males don't usually do this. They, they like keeping things bottled, not even to the friends. And that's why we see, we, you know, we see quite a high rate of suicide 
uh, uh, in men, mm-hmm. uh, much higher than in women. Yes, yeah, and and the startup world is not different. You, you, we've seen recently an increase in, in uh, male founders committing suicide. Obviously, it's very hard, as I said. It's, mm-hmm. it's a hard uh, uh, job to do. And, and being able to identify that, you know what, you, you might be in trouble you, and you need your support. So the support network of the entrepreneur, of the founder, I think is crucial. Um, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's a network of an association of other entrepreneurs, um, that is very important. And I, that is how I deal with this. The other thing that I usually say is that if possible, uh, try to have a co-founder. Uh, sharing the burden between two people, in my eyes, is much better than doing it on your own. Um, uh, nobody understands my troubles better than my co-founder. Uh, I don't understand his troubles better than me. Um, I can pick up the phone, and, and sometimes I am low, and he's cheering me up, or sometimes he's low, I'm cheering him up. Come on, yes, we can do this. Let's let's do this together. So, uh, the value of having a co-founder who is there to support you and and who you can talk to and you can share your worries um, means a lot because that means that you you already have that support that you need. Well, thank you, Sylvia. Um, yeah, and thank thanks you. again for coming on the show with me. I um, as, as soon as Gold X is uh, as soon as Gold X launches in America, I'll, I will make sure to start investing with. Investing Absolutely, in you're more than welcome. <laughs> I will let you know. Perfect. Thank, thank, you, thank you so Sylvia. much. And that is it for today's episode. Thanks for being a member of the Commonwealth. If you enjoyed this conversation, please tell your friends about us and leave a review. If you're interested in helping us grow this community, please invite your friends to like our Facebook page. The link and directions are in our show notes. We release episodes every Monday, so stay tuned for next week.